Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Radio Press, a podcast brought to you by the Transition Year students of PBC Cork. On this episode, we have Professor Carol Vaughan talking about COVID, the heart and the lessons learned from the pandemic, a guitar composition brought to you by one of our very own students, Liam Ring, and an interview with former professional golfer John McHenry. And stick around for our big interview with Simon Zebo. All on this episode of Radio Press. Firstly... Ever wonder what Preslink do? Well, Adam Hartley's bringing you an interview with former Superior General of the Presentation Brothers Order, Brother Martin Keneally. Hi, Brother Martin. Welcome to the show. You're here today to talk about Preslink. Well, thanks very much, Adam, for having me uh, on the show. Why and how was Preslink set up? About 15 years ago, uh, a group of principals from presentation schools in Ireland, including Michael Hennessy, who was principal here in PBC Cork at the time, they travelled to Ghana themselves and they visited presentation schools and communities and projects in Ghana. And they came back and they were so impressed with the work they saw and the work in education and helping young people that they decided in different schools they would try to organise things to help the schools in Ghana. And it took different forms in various presentation schools. Here in Prez, it led to the foundation of Preslink. And as you know, Preslink has really developed on huge work over 15 years or more, uh, not just in the fundraising thing, important as that might be, but I think also in developing links with the presentation family in West Africa, in Ghana and in Nigeria, links between schools. The, the school community gives a lot here, but I think we receive as well. The students and the staff members in, involved in Preslink would always say that it's about education and, of course, it's also about helping others. That's very true. So it was the Presentation Brothers who set it up, was it? Or were there other people involved as well? Yeah, it came out of the contact with the Presentation Brothers. I suppose essentially in the school here, it was a group of staff members who got together and said, let's do something. And they spoke to uh, students. And eventually it kind of made its home among fourth years, that every year okay, yeah. there's a fourth year committee and their job, I suppose, is to motivate the rest of the school because without the support of the rest of the staff and parents and students in the other years, Preslink couldn't be as successful as it is. And I'd say another point about Preslink would be that there's a great leadership training in it. Like a group learns to work together, to organize events, to take responsibility. And I think that leadership training and commitment stands to the students when they go into fifth year and sixth year and get involved in other organizations and activities. So I've had been lucky to have contact with a lot of Preslink committees over the years and really they've been very good. Yeah, you would get skills out of it that would stay for you for most of your life. So has Preslink been over to Ghana and Nigeria? Have they taken trips over to see? Yeah, they have. A good number of years ago, a group of students and staff uh, from here in Pres went to visit Ghana. They did it during midterm. Uh, so it was a short visit. Okay. It took a lot of organization because obviously to build up to a visit like that, you spend most of the year ahead of time educating people, fundraising people, getting ready for a visit to a country in West Africa and so on. But they had a wonderful experience. And I would have heard some of the staff members in President and indeed some of the students at the time say that it really affected them for life. Um, they saw the challenges in Ghana, but they also saw the great progress. And as I always say, we have so much to learn from the cultures of, of Africa as well. I mean, some of the students who went on that trip subsequently went back to Ghana when they were older themselves. One who was a doctor went back for a short time. 
Another guy who was doing international development studies, I think, in UCC, applied to the Presentation Brothers and did a placement in Ghana for a couple of months as part of his degree. Uh, and that all arose out of his first contact being through Preslink. So, like, it really has had a great effect on people, you know. How do students here in Pres get involved with Preslink? Well, what happens is that every year in fourth year, they ask for people to volunteer or to apply to be involved in Preslink. And uh, people apply and uh, they form a committee. Now, the committee is small, obviously. You can't have a huge committee for practical purposes. So there might be a dozen, there might be 15. But really then their job is to get their friends involved. So everybody on the committee contacts a number of friends. So the idea is that at some level, you get the whole of Fortier involved in the events. And you'd know some of the events they've had pre-COVID, and then they've adapted to COVID times with new events. So like recently this year, the Fortier's organized a first-year sponsored walk close to Presentation Day. They have this gigantic raffle at Christmas, and people are very generous with donations and gifts and so on. Uh, but pre-COVID, there would have been things like the Christmas Carol concert, which as you know, as a musician, showcased the gifts of a lot of the music people in the school. Yeah, it was good. It was really good over the, over the different years and a whole lot of events. So, like, it generates a great spirit in the school. I think it's good for the school, good for the students, good for... Like, we'd always say it just makes us conscious of the fact that we're here in Prez, we're very proud of PBC, but we're part of a bigger family as well. And we're part of a global family. And if, if we are really part of that family, we have to be concerned about parts of the family which mightn't be as advantageous as we are. So we we try to help, but also we try to learn and we try to receive from these cultures as well. I'm assuming you went over to Ghana yourself as well, did you? I did. When when I was congregation leader of the Presentation Brothers, I was there for 12 years, two two six-year terms uh, as leader. So my job was to go around the world, visit presentation schools and communities and meet the women and men and young people involved with the presentation family and try to encourage them and help them in different ways I could as leader. But during those 12 years, I would say I probably visited Ghana 25 to 30 times. Wow. And Nigeria and uh, Nigeria several times. But Ghana and Nigeria, I got to know well. Ghana is a beautiful, I mean, a great country. And and, uh, Nigeria is more problematic because there can be a lot of uh, violence, particularly yeah. in the north. You know, and what uh, would the conditions in Ghana and Nigeria be compared to Ireland? Compared to here? Um, well, education is making progress because if you have funding, you can basically start a school. You know, you can put up a school and you can get people teaching and learning yeah. and so on. Healthcare is much more difficult because you you tend to need a lot more specialized equipment and so on. So the healthcare system would be very face many challenges, particularly for poor people. I mean, in any of these developing world countries, if you live maybe in the capital city and you were lucky enough to have access to money, you can you can get to to hospitals and so on. But the Presentation Brothers are in rural northern Ghana, which is semi desert, you know. So uh, for me going out there, first of all the heat was intense uh, and all of that. You were working in that kind of a climate. But the people are great in, in terms of community and neighborliness and helping each other. So education is making progress. Um, we have some very good schools there. I mean, you'd be surprised. The facilities are very good, thanks to the generosity of Presnick and people in Ireland and Canada and England. And the curriculum would be very good. There'd be a very good standard of, of, of education, you know. Um, but many of them would be coming from rural 
poor backgrounds and in in some cases families mightn't be able to send all their children to school so they might send okay. one or two yeah. and what we did with that we wanted to promote the education of girls and of women young women yeah. So a lot of the funding went into schemes to provide access to education. So, for example, if you live, if you have to walk seven or eight miles to school every day in the heat, then if you have a bike, it makes it easier. So there was one scheme at one stage where they literally provided bikes to young girls so they could get to school and encourage families to send them. And that kind of a scheme would have been uh, promoted by yeah. President, you know, another scheme in Nigeria where a rural village had no access to clean water. I mean, we take it for granted water. Yeah, you go in you home, do. you turn on the tap, you put on the shower. But in rural Africa, that's a big deal. So like providing boreholes and getting a village access to water, water is life. So, I mean, the money has been really well used and it goes directly into projects. There's no big organization with admin costs and offices and so okay. on. It goes directly to the people. Straight you know? there, yeah. yeah. Is it all rural areas where present is? Yeah, affected? mostly. Like we're in the north, the, the, the capital of the northern region is Tamale. The brothers are there. Okay. And then up further, there's a city called Bolgatanga and the upper east region and so on. Now, they'd be fairly big cities and we're in one or two big cities. Uh the other thing would be a lot of the schools would be out in rural areas because it's, it's where there's a greater need for education. And I should say as well, I suppose, like that the schools are open to everyone. I mean, yeah. Catholics, Protestants, Muslims, people of all faiths and traditions and so on, who, who opt to come to the school because they know they're, they're good schools. And of course, they work out of a, a Christian value system, but really they're about serving people. And say, for example, in Yendi now in eastern Ghana, we have a school there in a very poor area. 90% of the students would be Muslim in that school. I mean, there's great relations in Ghana between Christians and Muslims and so on, you know. Nigeria, in northern Nigeria, there's been a problem with Boko Haram, who are an extreme terrorist crowd. And they, you know, kidnapped young girls at Chibok and so on. And one of the girls in our school there, a, a girl called Lavina James, 14 years old, was shot dead on the way to school a few years ago, uh, simply because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they are against, really, the education yeah, of women, you know. School, yeah. So that's a much more problematic area to work in. But Ghana is is very peaceful and beautiful. And making great progress. I mean, Nigeria should make progress too, because in theory, it's a biggest country, huge country with a lot of wealth and so on. But because of military governments and and corruption and stuff over the years, it hasn't made the progress it should have had, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And where can we find more information about Prezik? Well, there's a four-year committee in the school every year, and they're accompanied by about six or seven uh, staff members. So anybody who wants more information about Preslink or wants to help in, in any way could just email the school, uh, PBC, and uh, they, somebody will get back to them straight away because we're always looking for more support and help. Well, that was good to talk about Preslink. Thank you for coming in today. Thanks, thanks, Adam. And I just want to use the occasion to thank all the Preslink students and staff and the entire community of PBC because really they have been terrific supporters of the work of the Presentation family in Africa. And I know that uh, we are very grateful, the Presentation brothers, but the people in Africa are really very grateful too. It's lovely to travel around there and see signs on schools, this hall or this computer room, whatever was provided by Preslink PBC Cork. So well done. Thank you.
And now, our big interview with Simon Zebo, Monster Rugby player and former press boy. Hello Simon, thanks so much for coming on our show today. My pleasure, um, thanks for having me. I think the first question I really have is, how did you get into rugby? Um, I mean, you, you would have grown up in Black Rock and obviously you played GAA with Black Rock, but why is rugby the sport that you stuck with? Um, I used to be big into GAA, as you said, and um, like the rugby Cork Con where I would have grown up would have been the club. I used to clash a lot with uh, GAA on uh, weekends. And one of the weekends we had no match, I, I suppose, with GA got called off late, so I had nothing to do. And a family friend, called Charlie Murphy, an old, an old Cork Con man, uh, asked my father to bring me up. I was about seven or eight, I think. And I uh, went up to Cork Con and fell in love with it. And, and then my weekends were split, one week hurling, one week rugby and so forth for a few years until I made the choice. And then did you just stick with rugby the whole way up through Prez then? Yeah, like uh, when I came to Prez is when I properly fell in love with it, I suppose. Um, and I realised I wanted to make a career out of it when I was in here. Because, you know, you go, you play games, like um, you get to junior cup level and you see like crowds at the games. You see the girls from Skullvura or St. Angeles, all these other places. And you're like, wow, this is cool. Um, and you start to play well and you start to enjoy those atmospheres and then you want a taste of more and more and you go to monster games. And yeah, I fell in love with it properly in Prez and... We got, to, we got exposed to that kind of big games and big atmospheres and big crowds, so that made me want to, to play with Munster. And like, as, I guess, a junior rugby player, obviously because you're in front of a crowd, you're in front of your entire school, there's a lot of pressure, but what would you have learned from, from dealing with the pressure, for instance, of playing in Musgrave Park, and what would you have learned that helped you throughout the rest of your career? I suppose it's very important, yeah, the, the pressures that you get exposed to early on. Um, and one thing I probably would have learned would be to, to block it out or to use it as fuel and to block it out when things aren't going your way. So I suppose it's a tough balance to try and find when to engage with the crowd or feed off the crowd as opposed to then when they're against you and you're under the pump, how to, to block out the noise and just stay completely focused. So I didn't master that until probably professional sport, but being exposed to it from an early age definitely helped a lot. And then take us through the 2007 Senior Cup team. I mean, a number of Irish internationals, including yourself, and that phenomenal try as well. Um, what was the team spirit, really? What was it like in the locker room before that game? Um, and what was the atmosphere the whole way through the year, um, even training up in Wilton? Yeah, it was amazing. We, we, we had a really good group of players. Um, we had a real close bond. Um, and I'm not just saying that like I don't know how many years it's been since that game but um, I still keep in touch I'm still very friendly with a lot of players on that team um, which shows how close how, how tight knit a group we were I suppose but we always knew we had a good team so we were we were always uh, had the was it Paddy's Day or the day after Paddy's Day um, in the back of our heads you know the Senior Cup final day in Musgrave Park and the way it went, we, we, we beat Crescent in the semi-final and we got a load of confidence from that. And and then we went into the final knowing that we had a good chance, but we were up against a good Christians team. So the atmosphere was obviously really, really good. We had, um, you know, one side Prez, one side Christians, fully packed, pretty much Musgrave Park. And yeah, it was electric. It was um, one of the only games that I think I was ever really nervous for in my career, um, just because... You were probably more afraid of losing to Christians than actually anything, you know. Um, if it was another team, probably 
it would have been less stressful. But um, that was good. It was a really good win, a, a really important win for those internationals who continue to play on rugby because I suppose those kind of games mould you as a player going forward and having success early on in your rugby career or whatever sport career I think is important to, to get used to and you know I suppose you, you crave that habit of winning I suppose a bit more from being exposed to it early on. And then how did you progress to all of a sudden becoming on the, or coming on the Munster team then and having your first cap for Munster? Um, shortly after I left Prez I played for Munster under 20s I think it was, um, but I went straight from school to Cork on, so I wanted to play at the highest level. I didn't want to go to UCC to play to play rugby over there because I think they wanted me to play under twenties and stuff, and and I wanted to, I wanted to play senior level. I wanted to be, you know, mixing it with grown men and try and adapt to professional sport or um, as soon as possible. So yeah, I went to play with Cork on, had some good seasons there. We won a few trophies, and then from that, following that, I played Munster under twenties, Ireland under twenties, and went straight into my first professional contract. So it kind of, it kind of rolled on from Prez to Cork on to then Munster. So. And then after that, you were called up to the Ireland team. But what is the step up then from, for instance, the Munster senior team to the international level? How how big a step up is that, and how did you adapt to that? It was a huge step up, yeah. It was a very, very big step up. You know, I was... Um, obviously, we had really good players in Munster at the time. But, um, you know, up above, like, the fellas from Munster, like Paul O'Connell, Ronald O'Gara. Then you had Johnny Sexton, Brian O'Driscoll, Tommy Bow, all these guys, you know. So you're dealing with the... Not just, like, really good players at Munster, but you're dealing with the best of the best around the country, so... Being exposed to that at, say, 20 years of age and getting my first cap, I was 21 or just turned 22, was really cool. You, you, you learn how to cope. It's either sink or swim when you go to that level at a young age, you know, and, and you try and do the best you can, learn from the best, pick up tips along the way. Um, and then, sure, that up to another gear and all of a sudden 2013 Lions tour to Australia. Mm-hmm. And, I mean... How how did you find that mixing with all the players from Scotland, England, and Wales, guys that you know throughout the Six Nations, you're trying to beat them week week in and week out. How did you find mixing with them, and what did you learn? Yeah, it was really cool. Um, they were a really good bunch of guys. Um, it was a really good tour. We got plenty of game time. You know, there was a lot of games during the week, so we were able to mix and we were training all the time. So you get to learn what other guys do, what what other styles of coaching. You know, their mindset. You know, I suppose like from a backs point of view you know, um, different moves that the English players or the Welsh players like to run, you know, what they see when they're looking at attacks or what they see when they're looking at defences. You get just different point of views from so many different cultures and, and different players. So it was really, really good. Yeah, you just learn as much as you can. And also, I mean, we can't not talk about the prank call as well. <laughs> <laughs> so take us through, how did that happen? How did that all come about? It was actually, you know, we we had a fines committee on the Lions tour. So the, the fines committee would be in charge of punishment so if you it was just basically to keep up the the crack and the, the atmosphere while we're in a hotel I suppose uh, for most of the time and um, we had to come up with ideas or punishments that guys would have to do and we had five punishments and obviously there's six numbers on the dice so none of the lads could think of a sixth one so I actually thought of the, the phone call and Rory Best was asking me you know what, what to do and I said the phone call I said we should do this and he was 
you know, acting like my best friend, like, oh, don't worry, yeah, the fines committee, yeah, there's someone has to get pranked tomorrow or has to roll the dice tomorrow, so what should we do? And I was there thinking, like, oh, we have to get them good, have to do something bad. And it ended up it was me who was getting punished, you know, so I didn't have a clue and I was trying to think of something I would hate to do. So it was kind of a disaster that way, in that sense. Um, but it was just a bit of crack. I can't remember what I did wrong. Um, but they didn't forget about it and I had to call my old coach Rob Penny and he took it really well he was he was a good light he was he was always up for a bit of fun so it didn't go down too badly thankfully So I mean the Lions tour to Australia and then coming back winning the Six Nations in 2014 winning Six Nations in 2015 and then the first ever win against the All Blacks in 2016 in Chicago and obviously you scored a try in that game but with, with Anthony Foley after passing away before that match what was it like for the team, especially for the monster players, what was the atmosphere like? How did how did you emotionally prepare for that game? It was really really difficult, um, but I suppose weirdly enough, being in Chicago kind of helped because you know we were I wouldn't say distracted, but we were able to experience a complete culture shock and go out and get into the mix of the city, you know, and we were going for coffees, dinners, and we were kept busy constantly, and being in a new city kind of opens up your eyes and things like that. So I think if we were in Dublin, it would have been a bit of a different atmosphere. We probably would have been a bit more, I don't know, depressed or, you know, like not depressed, but, you know, you probably would have been a bit down in your feelings a bit more. But being in Chicago, being taken away and seeing such a, a buzz around the city for the game, um, there was loads of Irish support over in Chicago. Um and then we got to play the game and the monster players formed the figure of eight. We were up the front of that and the crowd went mental. You know, the atmosphere was probably one of the best I've ever experienced. So, yeah, it was, it was an incredible atmosphere, an incredible game. And it was, you know, really nice that we marked it with the first ever win just after Axel passed, you know. So it's um, one of the most special days I've had in green. Yeah. Wow. And then when you came back to Ireland, not long after, you went off to France to Racing 92. Um, so, again, another complete culture change and having to settle in there. How did you find that? Even something as simple as learning the language. How was that? Yeah, it was, it was, it was good. I, I actually, I loved it. I'm, my father's French, so I would have had a, a solid enough base of French when I went over. Like, I couldn't speak properly or fluently. But, for example, Finn Russell came over at the same time as me, um, and he had no French. He never did French in school and had, obviously had no French family, and he can barely speak English as it is. So um, he found it tough to learn French. Um, but I was able to, you know, say a few words and, uh, you know, speak to the French players in French a little bit. So they appreciate the effort when you make the effort to speak the language. But after a couple of months, I was able to, to pick it up and, and start speaking pretty, uh, pretty well. So that helped, and now my, my missus speaks the language my kids speak the language and yeah it's uh, really cool and I've got to ask is there any very funny Finn Russell stories that you have from training or anything um, <laughs> uh, there is probably lo- there's actually loads but I don't know if I can say it on the podcast <laughs> um, I can't think too much um, there was one time we were at training I suppose this is funny I could say it's PG. Uh, there was one time we were at training and the president of the club, who's a very wealthy man, has uh, like 200,000 bees on top of the training centre. And he was up there getting some honey for his coffee that he likes to do. And he was um, literally like this, pouring some honey into his coffee. And Finn, down from the pitch, we were like, oh, how much to hit him in the head with the coffee? 
And Finn, from about 45 yards, he just looked at me and said, um, spiral or end over end. And he, I said spiral, it's because it would be harder. And he spiraled the ball, I'd say, 45 metres, probably was, and pinged him, nearly killed him. <laughs> nearly killed him. Uh, <laughs> it was really funny. Pinged the him t- in the back you of nearly head. killed the Rassing president. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think he thought himself he'd be that accurate, but he was. And coffee went everywhere, and there was a lot of, yeah. And when you were over in France, obviously, I mean, a completely new environment. Um, how did you find it varied from the Irish rugby system, for instance? Completely different. Completely different, yeah. Um, like, over here, when we play a game, we might have a, you know, a menu or a, a sheet of plays, uh, an A4 sheet front and back, you know, so you'll have all the lineouts, all the scrums, and you like, have all your detail on where you need to be at what specific time, and it's very, you know, uh, detailed and structured. But over there... You still get the same piece of paper, but it might have three lineouts and three scrums, you know, of set play moves that you have to do. And the rest is just play what you see in front of you and play off the cuff. We had really good players, like real, uh, some of the best players in the world who were, you know, who don't like to be programmed or told what to do or structured. And we just kind of feed off each other. So um, that was a complete, completely different system and way of playing the game to what I was used to. And then, obviously, now you're back on Munster. You're getting your 150th appearance for Munster against Glasgow at the weekend. So what you've taken from Racing in terms of playing off the cuff, how have you developed that into your game since your return to Munster? Yeah, one of the reasons why I went to Racing in the first place was because, one, I always loved to, or always wanted to play in France, but two is I felt that my game, the way I played a game, would have fit the uh, French style so I would have naturally played that kind of way so I I didn't have to adjust my game to go over there to to um to play rugby but coming back here you'd probably have to tweak in or tweak a few things or sharpen up a couple areas to just kind of fit that different style or different kind of structure around the game um so I would have noticed more of a change coming back to Munster than than leaving to go to Racing in the first place and from I mean start to finish of your incredible career how how supportive have your family been? How much of an impact have they had on everything that you've done? Huge, yeah, huge. And it, it doesn't, you know, it, that starts way back from the Cork days when I was uh, eight or nine year old, when they were, you know, driving me to Yall, driving me to Waterford, driving me to, to Kerry, driving me all over, all over Munster to, to play rugby. And, you know, the little things like both parents being there supporting you at every game and, and uh, you know, coming home in the dirty clothes, you know, having them fresh the next day, all these things that contribute and the support when things don't go well, say uh, when the levels go up and you're in prayers and you play a bad game in Senior Cup or whatever and that support system to go home to, is, it's vital and it shapes you as a player and a person. So the the most important part of, of me and the, the personal player I am now would be as a result of the support and stuff from the family, yeah. Anyway, Simon, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show and obviously best of luck in the match against Glasgow with your 150th monster appearance. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me and you're a fantastic interview and you have a very bright future ahead of you. The thing that's dominated headlines for the past two years... Here's Professor Carl Vaughan from the Mercy Hospital to talk about COVID, the heart, and all the lessons we've learned from this pandemic. Hi, I'm Charlie Vaughan and welcome to Radio Press. 
Today I'll be talking um, with Professor of Cardiology Carl Vaughan about how COVID-19 and the vaccine affect the heart. So starting off, can COVID-19 affect the heart? Thank you, Charlie. It's a pleasure to be here today on this podcast. Uh, Yes, that's a good question. We've had a pandemic now for about two years and we have seen people coming into hospital with a viral myocarditis. That's a condition where the virus attacks the heart directly and causes damage to the heart muscle. Thankfully, it's rare. Some of the media picked up on this and put out some uh, scare uh, publications suggesting that this was very common, but it would appear now that it's certainly less than 1% but it's something for people to be aware of. And what would the symptoms be? The main symptoms would be chest pain, shortness of breath, dizziness, feeling of the heart beating very fast in the chest, and in very rare cases, heart failure, where the person would fill up with fluid and end up admitted to hospital with a a weak heart muscle. So if COVID-19 can affect the heart, can the vaccine affect the heart? There's been a lot of media attention to this topic in the last six to nine months. The Israelis have looked into this and the Americans have looked into this and we've certainly seen cases in Cork of of young men, predominantly men, not women, under the age of 30 coming in with mild inflammation of the heart muscle after vaccination. Now it's difficult to prove that it's the vaccine, but certainly the rate of inflammation is greater than in previous years when we didn't have vaccination. And the statistics out there would suggest from the Israelis and the Americans it's somewhere between one in 5,000 people to one in nine and a half thousand people might get a reaction in their heart muscle to the vaccine. Predominantly young men having the so-called messenger RNA vaccine, which would be the Pfizer vaccine in Cork. But that would not be a reason not to get vaccinated. But certainly we're, we're seeing a signal there. And that has been a concern in parents. And some people have advocated that they not vaccinate young boys for that reason. But I disagree with that. What lessons have we learned from the pandemic? That's a good question. I suppose that Looking back in the rearview mirror, I think we learned a lot of lessons about how we approached the vaccine as a society, sort of from a governmental level right down to a healthcare level. We've learned lessons individually, we've learned lessons as a society, and we've learned lessons collectively. I think the health service has learned the lesson that our capacity is probably not optimal, and, and we've known that before the pandemic. We've always had problems this time of the year in January with overcrowding. We've kind of learned that lockdowns work when you don't have a vaccine, but they don't really work very well when you do have a vaccine. We've learned, I think, in Ireland that we're a fairly cohesive society. Our levels of vaccination are very, very high, over 95%. I think we've learned that your underlying health going into a pandemic is a big determinant of how a population will do during a pandemic. In other words, if you have an unhealthy population catching COVID, they're going to do much worse than a healthy population. That's why young people have done so well, even when they've caught the virus before they were vaccinated. Elderly patients are frail. Uh, we've learned that they're very vulnerable in nursing homes. Patients with cancer, immunosuppression, diabetics, people with high blood pressure, underlying heart disease, lung disease have done badly. We, we need to learn that in the future to handle maybe our next pandemic, we need to be healthier as a society. And that health begins here in school. It doesn't begin when you're 50 years old like me. It begins when you're an 18-year-old or a 16-year-old. So being healthy moving forward as a society is our probably our greatest weapon. How should teenagers protect their health? I think teenagers, I think there's a couple of problems in teenagers at the moment that that I would see as as a parent and teenagers don't listen to parents but speaking in the broadest sense I would say uh, overweight is is a big issue we're we're looking at the statistics on rates of obesity in boys and girls under the age of 25 and it's growing despite the fact that this is a very sporting school uh, the vast majority of teenagers don't do a lot of physical uh, aerobic exercise and there's a weight gain problem and I would say it's worse amongst the girls and the guys 
I think smoking is a big problem. The the graphs for smoking in male versus female have it's going up in the girls and down in the guys. That's a big problem. I think our diets are we're not taking enough aerobic exercise. We've a sedentary lifestyle. We're sitting in front in front of computer screens and on the mobile phone. So I think exercise, taking the carbohydrates out of our diet, not smoking, alcohol excess is a problem in Ireland in general, not just amongst teenagers. But that needs to be curtailed, not not eliminated. And I think that's how I think teenagers protect their health. What are the main health lessons learned? The main health lessons learned is I think we need to probably think about how we expand our critical care capacity because that was our Achilles heel coming into this. We knew we didn't have enough critical care beds and there was a big fear at the start of the pandemic that the hospitals would be overrun by critically ill patients and we wouldn't have enough oxygen or critical care beds. Secondly, we need to think about how we, uh, as a country that has a big a very strong history in Ireland and indeed locally with the pharmaceutical industry, we need to look at how to roll out a vaccine really rapidly in the future when the next threat comes. And it could happen next year or the year after the way the world is shaped now with international travel. We need to box clever. The ability to produce a vaccine very quickly is like dialing in a pin number. It can be manufactured now in three weeks. So we need to think about that. And the regulatory pathways to approve vaccines need to be streamlined as well. We need to have better overall health and we need to uh, think about this in advance, not, not when it happens. Uh, I think we were caught out by this. I think the world is caught out by this, not necessarily Ireland. But I do think that we need to be independent. We have great manufacturing capacity in the harbour in, in the pharmaceutical world where Cork people are very attached. A lot of our families work there. And I think that's really how we should be independent. We should have our own vaccine manufacturing facilities on site for the next time around. Are you optimistic now about our ability to fight future pandemics? I actually am very optimistic. I think we've learned an awful lot. The one lesson I would take home from this is that our ingenuity as a species to deliver things quickly when we're in trouble is, is very refreshing and reassuring. The virus was sequenced on the 11th of January 2020 and the first vaccine I think went into a human on the 16th of March. Uh, that would be a clinical trial that wasn't available for everyone. That is remarkably quick. If you think that vaccines in the past have taken up to seven years to develop, if the world had to wait seven years for a vaccine for this virus, we'd all be sitting at home now and you'd be on school, on Zoom from school, and we would have had a much higher mortality. So our ability to deliver things quickly when the chips are down is very reassuring. And I think we'd be much quicker out of the traps the next time. We've learned lessons about PPE. We've learned lessons about uh, air travel. We've learned lessons about our hospitals. We've learned lessons about our families and we've learned lessons about vaccination. So I'm very optimistic. I think this is going to change the way vaccines are, are delivered in the future forever. So I'm very optimistic. That was Professor Carl Vaughan. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Charlie. Back to you, Ronan. Up next, our golf correspondent Ryan Lyons talks to former professional golfer John McHenry and the successes in the USA of Leona Maguire and Seamus Power, two very prominent Irish golfers. Hello and welcome to Radio Prez. I'm Ryan Lyons and I'm the golf correspondent of the show. Today I'm joined by John McHenry, former tour professional and currently general manager of Douglas Golf Club. Hi John, welcome to Radio Press and thanks for joining me on the show. It was an amazing win for Leona Maguire on the US tour. What did you think of it? Oh, I think it was a fantastic win. I think not only for herself personally, but I think that for sports in Ireland and particularly for women's sports in Ireland, we've had leading lights, um, Kelly Harrington in the Olympics recently, obviously Katie Taylor and now Leona Maguire. I think these people are huge individuals in terms of young ladies looking at um, 
sporting heroes of theirs and aspiring and understanding really that they can conquer the world. Uh, they, these people have gone out and they've conquered the world. And I think that this will be a platform now for other young hopefuls to launch themselves off. And hopefully we'll see tremendous progress in this whole space over the next number of years. How important was the US collegiate system in helping her to where she is today? I think it was hugely important. Uh, most, most of the younger professionals tend to turn professional somewhere around the 18, 19 years of age, whereas she turned professional when she was 23 years of age. I think what the US system gave her was, she was already a, a leading amateur, but it gave her confidence, it gave her a lot of maturity uh, in her game. And I think that more importantly, it gave her scheduling. She she learned the collegiate system taught her how to schedule and how to pace herself on, on, on a golf course or throughout a year. Probably on the US collegiate system, she would have played against the very best amateurs in the world. So she would have known how she would have stacked up against those amateurs and the odd few professional games, tournaments that she would have played in. She would have brought that conference into those tournaments and I think it boded very well for her success. Yeah. Do you think she can reach the heights of uh, players in the game such as Lexi Thompson and Nelly Corda? I think that they have more powerful games than Leone has, but I think that she, if you look at her curve, she's obviously got huge confidence in herself. She now has the, the win behind her belt. I think that she can be a very, very, very consistent performer. Uh, I think that certainly she can get to the very uh, highest ranking of number one in the world. But I think that, you know, I could see Leone operating around the top five in the world for the next 15 years. And, you know, she'll have a good season, so she might get to number one in the world. But I think she's going to be a very, very consistent performer for many years to come. It was also great to see Seamus Power playing so well. He took a completely different route to Rory McIlroy as he went through the US college system. Why do you think it's taken him so long to come this good? Well, I think that, first of all, he's playing on the hardest uh, tour in the world. You know, even Rory McIlroy starts out in the European Tour, and there's no doubt about it that it, it is less competitive than the PGA Tour. Once again, I, I think that Seamus is somebody who's probably blossomed a little bit later in life. But I think that he, he, he's always known he wants to play on the US Tour. Uh, it's very, very competitive. And I think it, it's about, for, for Seamus, really, over the last number of years, it's about being able to actually put four consistent rounds together. We've, we've known he can put two to three rounds together. He's never really put the four rounds together until last year. And now that he has won, um, you can just see how much confidence he has in himself and in his game. And I think that, uh, you know, he, he, he's a modern version, really, of of, of of every player. You know, with the consistent technology, he's powerful. Um, he plays a, a, a real strong power game, but he's got great strength in his short game. And I think that ultimately it's the short game that is the difference between him winning and him finishing the top 15 in the tournament. After his amazing start to last week with two rounds of 64, why do you think it went wrong for him in the final two rounds? Well, I think comp- competitive uh, and competition at that level is always mental. And like everything, it's very fickle. I think the hardened chisel profession, somebody who has won an awful lot of events, uh, w- would be far more patient. Whereas somebody who's only just starting out in that curve, um, maybe once in his career uh, in terms of a big event, your, your, your conference isn't quite as deep. So I think that he started off poorly and uh, mentally probably didn't readjust quickly enough. Whereas in the first round, he went for it. Uh, in, in, in Maybe in, in the last couple of rounds, he was trying to actually chase a win, got a little bit more excited, possibly put himself under a little bit too much pressure. And as a result, didn't perform as well as he, as he was capable of doing. 
but I think it still bodes well. All of these are good, strong experiences for for Seamus. And if he, the more top tens he can finish, and, and and the more he will know that when he's playing well and when his form is good, he's capable of winning tournaments. And I think that that means that ultimately he will win more tournaments going forward. John, thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure talking to you. Might see you on the course sometime soon. Thank you, Ryan, and thank you very much. And best wishes to yourself. I know you're a fine golfer yourself, and uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Joe Hayes will now speak to us about one of the most tragic events in human history with his piece that commemorates World Holocaust Day, followed by Liam Ring with his very own guitar composition, Spring. Hello and welcome to Radio Praise. I'm Joe Hayes and I'm speaking to you on Holocaust Remembrance Day. We're here in the school. We've planted flowers in our front garden in memory of those who were lost during the Holocaust. The Holocaust was the mass genocide of the Jewish population in Germany and German-occupied countries in Europe. It resulted in the death of over 6 million Jews at the hands of the fascist group known as the Nazis, led by Adolf Hitler. But before the Nazis began to kill two-thirds of the Jewish population in Europe, they made it clear to them that they weren't welcome. The Nazis dehumanised the Jews in many ways. The first strategy I will talk about is the use of propaganda to turn the German citizens against the Jews. This led to the boycott of Jewish businesses and shops. Jews were also forced out of jobs in the civil service and media. Secondly, the use of identification and exclusion made it hard for Jews to live a normal life. The Jews were given middle names on their identity papers, Sarah for females and Israel for males. The Jewish population also weren't allowed in public parks, theatres and public transport. In 1941, Jews were forced to wear a white bandage with either a blue or yellow Star of David on their outside clothes. Eventually, ghettos were set up to separate the Jews from the population so that they could easily be controlled and transported. They were created in cities and large towns and especially near railways, and often near killing sites or death camps. If a Jew was caught leaving a ghetto unpermitted, there were severe punishments and sometimes even shot. The brutality, harsh living conditions and disease added to the death toll. Finally, I would like to talk about concentration and death camps. Concentration camps were an integral part to the Nazi regime. They were originally set up in 1933 for political opponents, but after 1939 they became a place of imprisonment for Jews. There were six total death camps, all in Poland, and were made for one reason, and that was to murder the Jews of Europe, using a poison gas called Zyklon B. One question I have is, could it ever happen again? People in today's world are still being discriminated against, simply for their colour, religious beliefs or race. I would hope we have learned from our mistakes in recent history to not let something so brutal happen again. I've been Joe Hayes, and thank you for listening to my piece.
Thank you for listening as always. I've been Ron McAuliffe and season two, episode three will be along shortly. 